Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Today, I am really delighted to have a colleague and a, a, someone I, I think I could begin to call a friend, uh, Hope Ray from Michigan. Hope, welcome. Hey, Rob. Hope Ray is, let me read a little bit about Hope. Um, Hope uh, helps couples learn deeper intimacy and a higher quality of trust after betrayal. She's a licensed professional counselor and also a certified sex addiction therapist. Her work is really focused on working with one couple at a time in intensive, specialized environments, guiding couples how to rebuild after infidelity. And uh, we'll learn a little bit more about your work as we go along. But I would imagine you have no lack of uh, business <laughs> with unfaithful couples, Hope. That's my probably sad guess. Isn't it interesting how how many people are silently suffering out there? You're absolutely right that there are couples every day that I hear from who never thought this would be them, uh, or they considered themselves to be in a pretty normal, healthy marriage, and all of a sudden uh, the the bottom has fallen out from them. So I have a lot of compassion for these folks, and the truth is that our society isn't terribly friendly toward the notion of sex addiction, is it, Rob? We, uh, we have a lot of support to generate for these people who are in this struggle. This isn't just your typical cheating. We're talking about sex addiction, and, uh, and there's a lot to consider when it comes to rebuilding trust here. Well, I, I would join with you, um, Hope, in saying that I, I think it goes beyond sex addiction. I think we have an awfully long way to, to go to destigmatize addiction in our culture. And if we can't get to destigmatizing the problem and making it about the problem and not the person, then we're never going to solve the problem. And it is equally true with sex addiction or gambling addiction or any of the addictions that, you know, yes, this person did make these choices. They are an adult. They did engage in problem and bad behavior. Um, and they are accountable for that. But on the other hand, when we are looking at addiction, we're also looking at the how did this person end up making these choices? And oftentimes the people you and I work with, they aren't making, they are making choices they know is not in their best interest, that on some level they wish they weren't making, but they feel compelled or obsessed into these behaviors. And, and that's kind of different than somebody, that's very different than somebody who's had an affair or got a lap dance in Vegas or flirted with a neighbor. This is a whole different scale of meaningful and profound infidelity. Absolutely. And it's a whole different scale of of work. We we come at this treatment from an addiction perspective and we have to look at things that that 
involve someone's character and and their integrity, of course, but also their routines, their habits, their rituals. I mean, we're looking at so many aspects here in sex addiction treatment. And their history. Um, you and I both know that um, you don't get to be a sex addict by accident, and uh, which is a good thing. And therefore, most people have, uh, I'll use a fancy word here, antecedents or um, things they can look back to in their past and say, hmm, yeah, I guess that way of being raised, that way that my family handled that, that thing that happened to me, uh, or a combination of those things affected me more deeply than I realize, and I am acting out this behavior in adult life. And I think that's what kind of people don't get about sex addiction. They think someone's just kind of horny or, or maybe a sociopath. They just don't care about anything but their own needs or wants or they're a complete narcissist and they just want to feel good at all costs. And I mean, those could be reasons for these behaviors. But when we, you and I, talk to sex addicts, it, it appears clear 90% of the time, if not more often, that they're in deep and have been in deep enduring pain for a very long time. And that these behaviors are more uh, an attempt to feel better or to just feel okay or escape what they're feeling than actually any great desire to be to have some hot sexual experience. That's more of a just the route to the escape, like the alcohol is the route to the escape or the gambling is the route to the escape. Is that how you see it? Well, absolutely. And I think it that these clients speak for themselves when they discuss how profoundly unhappy they are. They aren't enjoying themselves and having the time of their lives. Things are out of control and they're losing the things that are most precious to them. And uh, it's it's a tricky thing. You know, we, we should discuss together what it's like for the partner going through this, you know, as well, because the truth is, you know, there's there's a lot that they're losing as a result of their behavior, but at the same time, they've made every conscious choice that got them to that place. At the same time, there's a compulsive nature going on that at the same time, they were still responsible for every decision they made during that time. So for the partner who is experiencing this fresh discovery or the awareness of their partner's infidelity and acting out and all of the cheating that's gone on in whatever capacity this person has, man, I mean, it, it is a tough dance for both partners for very unique reasons. Yeah, you mentioned partner empathy, and I have so much empathy for someone who is living with someone who is a sex addict because you're caught between the desire to run as fast as you can from anyone who would do all of this and not tell you or live a double life, you know, and be connected to you so deeply through marriage or relationship. You know, my instinct is to run. My instinct is to scream. My instinct is to say, who the heck are you? I, I don't even know who I'm with anymore. Um, my instinct as a partner is to go through everything that I can find of his or hers, every receipt, <laughs> every cell phone bill. Every, you know, I want to know what happened. I mean, these are all intense uh, feelings and behaviors that partners go through, which I think are kind of normal for someone who's really been traumatized by information that maybe they suspected in some ways, but they would have had no idea uh, how how large, how deep, and how enduring the problem might be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think uh, for a lot of partners, they're asking this question early on in discovery. You know, what is the difference between him just being a total jerk or an addict? What is the difference between my wife being a careless, um, unempathic spouse and somebody who's actually caught up in this and it has to do with some of her childhood history and wounds? I think what you're talking about really is... Um 
how much a partner is thrown off balance um, and, and how devastating it is to all of their beliefs and all of their hopes and dreams. And, and you know, I know that cheating is devastating to anyone, but maybe we should mention the scale of what we're talking about when we're working with a sex addict. It's often not just cheating, it's cheating a hundred times or it's, you know, 50 sex workers this year or um, three or four hours a day I'm spending every single day or every other day, day after day, focusing on porn or webcam. And I have all kinds of secrets around sex if I'm a sex addict, not just one thing or two things, but in multiple areas. And so when a partner is hit with this, they're not just hit with one little issue, they're hit with really the concept that they're living with someone who's emotionally ill. And they didn't really know it because that person kind of fooled them into thinking they were healthy. Um, but they lived their illness, if you will, in a compartmentalized separate way. And that can really throw a spouse because oftentimes I think spouses don't necessarily see what's coming. And, and I couldn't I wouldn't blame them if they didn't. And most of them, don't they report this? They always say, you know, once in a while they'll say, I saw a red flag or two or, I, you know, I kind of knew some things were off. But in general, don't they usually say, I had no idea how bad this was? Well, and I, and, and I want to say something about that because, and, and, and I'm hoping you can reinforce this hope because, you know, there is this thing in our culture, well, you know, how could she not know or how could they not know? Like your neighbor knows, your coworkers know. So people pick up on things, you know, really quickly. And oftentimes people will say, well, how could that spouse, male or female, be the last to know? But from a therapist's perspective, of course you would be the last to know because why would you why would you want to or think about suspecting the person that you're closest to in the world or one of the people you're closest to in the world of lying, cheating, and living a double life? You would naturally, I think, forgive some of their mistakes, overlook some of the things because you're not looking – no one, I don't think, is looking to prove to themselves how – horrible their partner is, I think we all want to sort of look at our partner and think, yeah, that's a good person. And so we might ignore signs and signals that someone on the outside of the relationship would notice, but then we get accused of how could they be the last to know, which I think is is kind of unfair. You know what I mean? It is. It's hideous. And, you know, this happens a lot with women who are partners to somebody who have just had a major sex scandal uh, and, and they get a really bad rap for staying and people think it's all about the money. But what, what people don't realize if they haven't been through this situation is that all the efforts on behalf of the addict are concentrated around keeping this secret and that these folks can become the most incredible, intelligent manipulators and liars. And the truth is that when somebody's compartmentalizing or trying to keep their acting out away from the people who cannot see it, the people whose heart it would break, right? Uh, then they're they're developing all these other characteristics along with it. You know, in order to live a double life, we can't just act out and then, you know, spend the rest of our day being normal. We act out and then we spend the rest of our day compartmentalizing, trying to get rid of any empathy that's trying to peak up and make us feel bad. So we, we generate a sense of entitlement and a sense of almost a narcissistic, selfish way about us, right? There's a sense of dishonesty that can develop when we're living two separate lives. Lives, we develop a lot of poor character traits in order to keep these secrets. I was going to say how funny it is to me that the men that I work with in particular who are cheating regularly and they are sex addicts will say, to your point, I, I, I think my wife's a witch. Like, 
I can come home five days in a week and she has, and I haven't done anything and she doesn't say anything. But that sixth day when I've actually hooked up with someone or gotten on an app or it's like magic. It's like, she knows she can read my mind. And, and my thought is always, dude, you're not that good. Like when we act out, we show signs, we distance ourselves from our partners. As you said, we become more like a shell. You know, we were self-protective We're we're, we're keeping ourselves from loving our partner too much because that might make us feel guilty. So we show all kinds of signs that the partner experiences and sees. And that's when the gaslighting starts. And maybe you want to mention a little bit about that. Oh, it's such a, such an awful part of the cycle because yes, while these signs are there, the truth is there's usually not enough evidence for the partner to really put the story together, right? I mean, mm. she's not seeing the credit card bills or the the, the secret phones uh, or the receipts or, you know, whatever it is that is a paper trail to this acting out. Most of the time, she hasn't begun digging yet until she's aware that this is a, a problem in the relationship. Mm-hmm. So, Or he. Or he, right. And so the idea is once somebody has... Uh, started to feel these uncomfortable feelings, like something's not right with my partner. At that point, they feel something, but they can't quite get it confirmed, you know? And Mm -hmm. this is a person who signed up to love them for the rest of their lives. Many of these folks have, you know, histories together, a legacy of children, a whole future. You know, I worked with a couple that was just getting into retirement together. They had just purchased their big RV to, you know, start driving across the country and have all their plans and 60 years into their relationship or so this is the new discovery and you know how could she not have known well they know each other pretty well but it doesn't mean somebody can't compartmentalize behavior when their partner's away well and and you you hope of you know you and i talk a lot about tech and how it's changing people's lives and i know just you know as an older person who's not spending 60% of my time in the digital world as younger people do, but I'm still very connected to it. You know, it's, my life is not like it was 20 years ago. You know, I, I finish 50 emails at home at work, I mean, and then I, I figure my day's over and then I get home and there's another 50 waiting for me. And so the pace of life, uh, what kids needs are, what demands are on a woman to both be working as much as she has to, to support her family and be taking care of a family. It's much easier, or I should say it's, it's more difficult to take the time to put pieces together. And it's so much easier to say, to say, oh, well, yeah, they're busy or they must be tired or they have a cold or, you know, to, or, or, or we, our kids are young. So uh, it's understandable that he or she isn't available. I mean, there are all kinds of ways that we will so readily buy into lies because, who has the time to investigate? You know, we're tired, we're busy, we're getting crazy with our own lives. And we're just sort of hoping that we're both going along the same path together. But that's not always the case. Absolutely. And, you know, some of these folks uh, are, are really, really good at maintaining a normal balance between acting out and, and their secret life and who they are at home. And they can attend all the baseball games. They can be at all the parent-teacher meetings and still at the same time have these issues, whether they're coming up or when they're away. They're not, they'll be at the ball game, but they're not going to be present. Yeah. You know, the, the, the sex addict will be at the ball game flipping through a hookup app while sitting in the stands, seeing who they can hook up with tomorrow or later, that's not the dad or, or mom who's standing there cheering for their kid. They may show up, but half the time they're not emotionally present, which is incredibly painful because everyone feels that and sees it, but no one put a name on why. Right. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love, and Addiction podcast. 
Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com. Or call us at 747-234-4325. You talk about the addict not being emotionally present, Rob, and I think that's so key. One of the one of the things that a lot of partners have in common is that they didn't realize how very little intimacy they were receiving in their relationship. And it's not until they get into a, a place of rebuilding the relationship after their partner's in recovery that they start to experience a new depth and a new quality of intimacy, something much deeper than they had before. And I love exploring this with partners, and I'm always asking them to look back at their upbringing and figure out where along the way they may have been under-nurtured, right? Because we don't go shopping at the grocery store for something we've never tried before, right? So when a partner is going to go find another partner, and this partner is a budding sex addict, let's say, and they have no clue, neither one of them. And the, the relationship progresses and, and they get to a committed state in their relationship. And then the sex addiction news comes forward. And now the partner who's been betrayed is saying, oh, my gosh, like all this time I thought you were this person and you're this person. A lot of times partners in that position need to evaluate where along the way did I learn to tolerate such low doses of intimacy? This guy hasn't been present at the baseball games. This woman hasn't really been my partner all this time. She's always stayed connected to these old flings or my my spouse is, you know, always at work and, and I can tell he generates inappropriate relationships with other women or other men. The idea is Women and men who are partners do have some healing work to do around their own ability to detect proper, healthy, solid intimacy. And that's that's one of the big rewards that partners have, whether they stay in their relationship or they find a new one after sex addiction has disrupted their relationship. They can develop pretty deep, amazing connections with folks. I hear what you're saying, Hope, and 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 I I I, I uh, when I listen to you, I feel like Hope is treading on thin ice, <laughs> because it's very important for me to say to any partner of a sex addict that this is not your responsibility, that this is not something you created, it's not something you can make happen, and it's not something you can make go away. And when we talk about partners maybe not seeing things they might have seen, because maybe they grew up in families where they didn't see things, and now they're adults and they don't see the same things, I get all of that and I understand it, but I worry because I think it's really important for us to validate partners for the pain they're in, the hurt that they're suffering. And and in a way, it doesn't matter in my mind how they grew up because, you know, when you fall in love and you marry someone or you get committed to someone, you're in that bubble of seduction and fantasy and romance, all that stuff that the songs are made of and, you know, the, all of that. And, you know, who you're really, and when we're in that kind of limerence, early romance state, we're not looking for what's not right. We're looking for what's right. And everything feels great and wonderful. And oftentimes people will get deeply committed during that period of early romance, which is what it's for. But when it wears off, 
then maybe we have kids. Then maybe we have a busy household. Maybe then we have three jobs. Maybe then you're traveling a lot. And so there, uh, what I want to say is the, the situation that many people enter at the beginning of a relationship is often not the situation they find themselves in two years later. And I would apply this sort of frog in the boiling water scenario to this, that I think just as many women, for example, who don't have any trauma history marry an alcoholic as those who do. It's just that when you are involved with someone, um, you you know you love them unquestionably in the beginning, and then as the temperature goes up and you see less and less of them, and they get less and less available, and they get more and more or less and less intimate. And but there are all kinds of excuses for that. You know, I'm busy. We have a job. We have kids. We, there are a lot of ways that you can talk yourself out of believing that it's a problem because after all, maybe you've never been married before. Maybe you've never had kids before. Maybe you've never had a spouse who travels before. So I don't necessarily, I do think that it's certainly something to consider that at some point a partner might need to look at, you know, their upbringing and how that might affect what's going on in their lives today. But I think we have to be very cautious. I believe that it's very important to be cautious about putting any responsibility for the cheating, the lying and the sexual behavior on the partner. Cause I know that any partner of an addict is feeling once they really find out what's been going on, something like, did I not do enough? Or could I have been more? Or could I have helped the situation? Anybody who loves someone and is experiencing grief around what that relationship is or might have been is going to feel remorse. Grief brings up remorse. And when your relationship turns out to not be what you had hoped it would be, I can imagine it's very easy to say, what did I do wrong to make that relationship go bad? So in the beginning, I think it's really, for me, it's really important to let spouses know and I, that it's maybe not so important in the beginning to look at their own past or their own history or even the relationship history they had with this person, but rather in the very beginning to, to understand that they have been victimized and they have been betrayed and they have a good reason to be so angry and so hurt. And for me with partners, I just want to wrap my arms around them and say, good for you for loving this person and loving this family the best you could. And, you know, who knew that it was going to turn out this way? And let's support you into finding a way for you both to heal. Um, and maybe in a few years, if you want to look at your history, great, you know, glad to help you with that. But right now, in the beginning, you're in pain and you are suffering. And anyway, Hope, I think some of what you're picking up is my next book, um, this book called Pro-Dependence, Pro which is, it's called Pro-Dependence, uh, Moving Beyond Codependency. And uh, it's a strong stance that I have about wanting to really push that term aside, that that label codependency, and look at partners in a different light. So uh, th that's probably a little bit of what you're here spilling out. Absolutely. I love hearing that you are going to bat for these folks in a big way with your new book because partners are so misunderstood. And it's really important that they don't experience blame for their partner's sexual behaviors in any way. Uh, and it's also important that they feel normalized around the idea that they didn't know this was going on. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the majority of folks. It's also okay for them to try and stay in their relationships, even though most of them say that hey, if this happened to me, or if you told me this was going to happen to me, there's no way I would have ever stayed. Or if this happened to my girlfriend, I would have told her to leave immediately. And here I am sitting here in this office, you know, talking about my, my spouse or my partner who is a sex addict. So I agree with the heart of what you're saying. Let me be a little more clear about what I'm talking about here. I believe one of the greatest powers, one of the greatest features of healing that we can give partners is the ability to detect intimacy 
And while in general, most of us have a bit of a broken intimacy detector, it's just part of culture. It's just part of everyone not being raised by a perfect parent, everyone having some traumas big and little in their life, right? And and, and may I say Dr. Spock too, let's just throw him in there. He didn't exactly teach my parents how to, how to gain intimacy with their children. He more taught them that we were like dogs or pets until we were teenagers. So um, just a little bit, our culture has something to do with that too. A big thing to do with that. You're right. So when, when it comes to partners, whether they're men or women, one of the best things that they can do is equip themselves with an ability to experience intimacy. Now, wait, wait, I have to stop you here because Hope, I know, I know this. When people hear the word intimacy, they think sex. Mm-hmm. I know it. So can you define what you mean by a, a better awareness of intimacy? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. Intimacy being that of a connection with another person. Uh, some people call it into me see, that no holds barred, no matter what it is about me that I'm displeased with or that you might be displeased with. I allow you to see me for who I am. I allow there to be no barriers between us. I allow there to be a connection with you and I open myself to you. Now, that isn't always safe in the wake of of betrayal, right? So what I'm not advocating for is partners to be able to just, you know, be all vulnerable, etc. I am advocating, however, that they figure out if they are receiving healthy doses of intimacy as their partners in recovery. And it doesn't just have to be from the partner, right? I mean, are they getting intimacy from... Uh, a dear friend that they've turned to? Are they getting intimacy from a support group? Are they getting intimacy from a family member who's been supportive, who really wants to be on their side? Because there are many, many ways. And and in fact, I want to add to that briefly. I think a lot of times partners are lost because, well, addicts and partners are lost because it's not unusual for a couple like this to have put all of their eggs in one basket for support, which, which is each other. And when one partner fails like they're found out as having a severe problem like this, it's often true, I think, that neither one knows who to turn to because they have let go of a lot of the support they had outside the relationship when they entered the relationship. And and what I what I try to support partners with is this. I say, listen, um, there's there's a lot of work that you'll need to do to heal, but you can heal regardless of what happens to your relationship. You can heal regardless of how your partner gets into recovery or not. It doesn't mean you'll want to stay with your partner, right? But you can heal. Your healing isn't bound to someone else's recovery. However, if you're going to heal all the way, one of the things that I encourage partners to look at is where along the way may they have tolerated low levels of intimacy Mm. because if they are going to stay in a relationship with that addict, they need to be able to tell if, if he or she is engaged or not. And of course, I'm not saying they could ever 100% detect whether or not someone's acting out. But if partners know we're sitting at this baseball game and my my spouse is zoning out and he's on his phone and something's not right here, I wouldn't say she ought to jump to a conclusion that he's acting out. But I would say that in that case, uh, she needs to be able to talk through that with him and they need to they need to take that into their into their therapy work together. And the truth is that these are the types of nitty-gritty conversations that so many couples in recovery are going through, uh, where they are diving into some of these most intricate little things. I felt like you were aloof at the game on your phone. And we need to spend an hour with our therapist talking about this. But the truth is if if the partner he or she is going to feel safe again, she needs to be able to gauge whether or not she has her partner or his partner fully there with him present again. 
And this, I was, I was just going to say, I think this is a, really an object lesson in how to have a healthy relationship because when you become more aware of what you need and when your partner is meeting those needs or not, when you become more aware of when your partner is in need and how you can meet those needs, and and then this becomes mutually reinforcing, that's a healthy relationship. You know, it's funny, I don't, I don't know if you have this experience in your relationship, Hope, but I know for me, like, when I'm needy, and I'm just feeling, you know, empty and tired and frustrated, whatever it is, you know, we all have our days, and my spouse is feeling good, we're in great shape. And if he's in a good, and if he's like vulnerable and upset and having a hard time and struggling and I'm in good mood, or I have a lot of, you know, I'm feeling filled up inside, we're in great shape. But if both of us, and I think this may be particularly true with two men together, when both of us are needful and both of us are wanting, we start pecking at each other like crows because we're each trying to get something from the other that neither one is really available to give. And that's when the fights start happening and the disagreements because we're both trying to get something out of a dry well. So I think what you're talking about is so important in terms of being aware of what you need when you know that those needs are being met and when you're feeling kind of being left empty handed in your relationship, because that is the time to speak up. I think anybody listening would want to know from you as a therapist out there in the world, how do you define a couple that comes into crisis who, where there's been a little bit of cheating and the partner's a bit of a jerk uh, versus this is a sex addiction problem. You know, I'm sure a lot of people would like to say, I, I don't know if I'm a sex addict or not, but I've done this, or I don't know if my spouse is a sex addict or not, but they've done these things. How would you know? How do we know? Well, of course, there are criteria that are well outlined in lots of people's work. The most foundational person I would suggest, uh, you know, who outlined some of this work would be Dr. Patrick Carnes, yourself, uh, Dr. Ken Adams. There's a lot of folks who've really helped us define what acting out in sex addiction looks like. But here's the way I look at it in a more kind of layman's terms. The idea is we can have compulsions that begin to overwhelm us in a way that it steals our attention, it drains out our energy, it causes consequences within our sphere of, of friends, family, work, employment. And at that point, once we've, when something's grown bigger than us, and we find ourselves always submitting to it, at that point, we've got an issue. Now, people debate and argue. They say, oh, you can't be addicted to coffee. Oh, you can't be addicted to porn. Oh, you can't be addicted to video games. But the truth is, while I believe research is well established that you can, I do think that it's more a matter of, is this thing erupting into something that's blowing up your life? So I, I, I want to follow that by saying, I think what you're saying is, it's and, and this is sort of how I define addiction in any, whether it's drugs, alcohol, sex, gambling, it's about functioning. If I'm not functioning at my capacity or best, you know, 80% of it for work, for my family, for my recreation, if, if, if my percentages of my focus and attention on my life are diminishing because my focus is increasing on my drug use or my gambling or my sexual behavior, that's when I might begin to look at addiction. And especially, as you said, if I find that I've had a consequence, like my boss saw the porn at work and said, hey, you know, you're going to get fired or my spouse found out something and I had to you know, sort of talk it away and pretend, you know, we have warning signs. Sex addicts do that. Trouble is coming. But for a sex addict, they don't say, oh, well, I'm going to stop this behavior, clear my, clean myself up and not get in trouble. They sort of leap ahead because they figure, well, what nobody knows won't hurt them and I'll just get away with this. What they don't realize is that their own lives are becoming wrecked. Not so, not even the lives are, uh, not as much the lives of people around them as their own lives. 
are compromised. Absolutely. And so they dig deeper and deeper. And this is where, uh, this is where I think for folks in recovery, it's really hard because they say, listen, I didn't realize to what degree I was getting so lost, you know, but Mm. folks who are impacted by their behavior are saying every one of those things you did was a decision. And, and so that's a real dissonance between the two. When, when two folks are in a relationship on both ends of that spectrum, you've got these really opposite vantage points, right? One who feels very betrayed and hurt and the other who feels terrible that they've done this at the same time, they recognize their issue and, and they also feel helpless and hopeless to have fixed it or done it any different. And a part of them wants to go do it again. And will always want to go do it again. And that's a really hard part for a partner to understand is that I'm now, my new reality is that this person that I thought I knew isn't who I thought I knew. And now I actually know a lot more about them past, present, and future. Uh, Now I have new decisions to make about whether I want to be with them and how we conduct this relationship. So that brings me to my lightning round question for you, Hope, which is basically, you know, if if you were, uh, let's just say a woman married to a guy, most typical scenario for us, and uh, has a couple of kids, whatever, and you just found out that not only was there a lap dance in Vegas and maybe a little flirting with an ex-girlfriend, but you've just found thousands of porn images and webcam histories of chatting with other women or men and and uh, and and maybe that there are seats for someone hooking up when they're out of the, you know you start to do your detective work and you realize that you have a big problem and you've been lied to what are some of the first things you would say that a partner might do in those moments to take care of themselves and also not poison the process well one of the first things that a partner can do to honor her reality there is is find someone to talk about it with and stabilize a bit. A lot of women are so shocked, so frightened, and so embarrassed or ashamed of the situation that they find themselves uh, isolating further. Uh, Find someone to talk to who's a therapist. Find someone who understands that you didn't cause this, that you can't cure it. And find someone who uh, maybe within, you know, your realm of friends or family, but be cautious about that at first, because you are going to be in such a tizzy of chaos and crisis that you want to be able to make sure you found a support person who's actually going to support you and won't in turn need you to support them back. Because this can be shocking information for folks. One of the first things that partners really need to do is be able to maintain a sense of reality that this is real, uh, that this goes very deep, that I didn't cause this. At the same time, I'm going to take this very seriously and I'm not going to kid myself that it's not as bad as I think. I'm going to trust that there's probably more I don't know and that I shouldn't just cozy back up to my spouse believing that he told me everything or she told me everything. Uh, And I'm not trying to snub folks who are in recovery. But what I am saying is that usually without a very therapeutic process, the whole truth doesn't always come out, does it? <laughs> it, uh, it takes a while. It leaks out over time. And so partners would do well to consider an actual therapeutic process around disclosure or uh, to at least say to themselves, this may not be the whole story. I'm not just going to throw all my eggs back in this basket and tell my brain to trust again. Your brain won't work that way. You're going to find down the road if you decide you're just going to automatically trust someone again, that that is a false foundation of trust. I I was going to add a couple of things because your ideas are so good. I I want to say that talking to someone who's safe is such a, you know, my mother may feel safe or his mother or her mother may feel safe or, but then, you know, if I tell my mom, for example, 
she's going to know that the rest of our married life or the rest of our coupleship, she's never going to look at my partner in the same way again. That doesn't mean I shouldn't tell my mom, but who I choose to tell and when and how I tell them, I think for partners is a, is a difficult one because like you said, in the moment they're, oh my God, I got to talk to someone and they should, but it's too embarrassing, too humiliating, too uncomfortable to just go to anybody and yet they really do need the support so who they choose is really important i think a csat therapist you know certified sex addiction therapist someone who understands them someone who will be running a, a betrayal or a partners group maybe a clergy member but someone who who can't worsen the situation later by having known about it i i would never run and tell my kids you know i would never run and tell his or her boss i mean i wouldn't want to do anything that i couldn't take back later but but they still really need that support. And yes, this, the deck is stacked against women reaching out about this because, you know, the culture already says, well, honey, you know, if your husband's cheating, it must be because you weren't good enough. And, you know, that's a very hard message for a woman to get out of her head because women are holistic thinkers. And of course, they think they're a part of this and they are, but not in the way that they may be blaming themselves for. Right. And culturally, we're taught that. However, uh, the actual situations themselves often convey the same message. You know, if I were enough, why would you be looking at dozens yes. of women every week on your computer? Or why would you need to reconnect with with that person who you were inappropriate with last year? Right. So I think you're right. The The deck is stacked against against partners in many ways, culturally for men, culturally for women. It depends on whether this is a gay or straight relationship. It also depends on whether or not uh, the person who is coming alongside to support this relationship has a perspective around sex addiction or if they deny that it's it's a serious issue. Well, uh, to that end, I will recommend Sex Addiction 101, uh, which I wrote, uh, let's see, about two years ago. I wanted to write a very simple, basic, hey, you think you or someone has this problem look at this and you'll be able to figure it out. And I think Sex Addiction 101 is probably where I would encourage people to turn just for a simple explanation of a very challenging issue. And then I hope at some point, Ray, I hope that they, I, I want to call you Hope and Ray and Hope and Ray and Ray, Ray of Hope. And <laughs> you're just so great to talk to. I, I hope that they find you if they need you and are able to do the work that you do in intensive couple work. Um, let me ask you again, if people want to contact you or they're interested in uh, doing some kind of intensive work for you as a couple with you, uh, how would they reach you? My website is hoperaytherapy.com. And if you click on intensives, you'll find one called the Hope and Freedom Intensive. This is where I walk couples, individual couples, through the disclosure process over the course of three days. It's a lot of hard work. It can be very rewarding, but it's a good resource for those of you who are in need of that type of support right now. You know, I'm just thinking about how the basic tools of every therapist uh, in our offices, one of our basic tools is a big box of Kleenex. And I'm thinking you probably need two for your intensives. And and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I hope, Ray, I'm so delighted to have you here. I hope you will come back and join me again. Um, thanks to all of you listening. And thank you. Hope we shall. We'll be back probably in a minute with a new podcast. Talk to you soon. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. 
On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.